You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and boy, are we in for a treat today. We are welcoming one of my favorite authors, Emily Oster, to the show. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of Crib Sheet and Expecting Better. I found Expecting Better in my first pregnancy when I was experiencing a lot of anxiety around all of the miscommunication or conflicting advice coming from doctors and online and friends and family. And I really found that her books helped to cut through the noise with the true research and data. Emily is a Harvard-trained economist and takes the skills needed from that field to gather data, analyze it, sift through it, to really speak to the core truths of the parenting space. Things like, can you consume alcohol while pregnant? Or am I allowed to have my cup of coffee while pregnant? To things like, is sleep training going to ruin my child? Or is breast milk really as magical as they say? You know, all of these pieces that are such polarizing parenting topics, she cuts through the noise, cuts through the BS, and talks about them in a really factual, data-driven way. And she's such a hoot. We had so much fun doing this interview, and there's so much for you guys to take away from today. Let's hear my interview with best-selling author Emily Oster. Hey, mamas, Erica here. I don't know about you, but I spent my time before baby's arrival prepping things like the nursery and shopping online for clothes and all the baby gear when really what I needed to be preparing for was my adjustment into motherhood or my postpartum experience. What I truly needed was a birth plan for mom. And guess what? I've created the resource I wish I had. A child isn't the only one who needs care and support during the postpartum period. It is so important that we learn to mother the mother And in this case, for you to learn how to cultivate your own inner mother and nurture yourself in the postpartum period. And the postpartum prep list that I created helps you to do just that. It will help you to think through and prioritize your needs in the postpartum period, as well as educate you on any of the red flags or things to be mindful of in terms of postpartum depression, anxiety, or intrusive thoughts. It is a 20-page substantial resource, and it is completely free. This is something I wish I had and I want all moms to have so they feel empowered and prepared to go into whether it's their first-time birth experience or adding siblings and additional members of their family. This resource is for anyone going through that transition. You can find it at happyasamother.co slash prep list. It's happyasamother.co slash P-R-E-P list. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. I was just sort of explaining off air that you're one of the books that I came across in my early expecting years, and now I have three littles. My oldest is turning six, and They've been such a guide. You continue to expand the age groups that they address. And I know that my audience is so going to appreciate what we dive into today. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's so nice to hear. Yeah, I have to ask before we jump in to the books and the content, 
How does an economist find their way into the parenting space? And I've read a little bit about your story through your book, but for those who have not met you before, how does one find their way into that space? So I think the short answer is that I got pregnant and then I was in the space. And, you know, when I was first pregnant with my oldest, who's now 10 and is, by the way, at sleepaway camp, which tells you something about what happens as you age. Right. But when I was first pregnant with her, I sort of found myself not able to access the kind of information and the kind of guidance that I had looked for and that I had been typically used to accessing in my normal life. And there were a lot of rules and regulations and just things that I was told to do or not do without having been given a lot of reason. And so the sort of initial motivation for a lot of the research that went into expecting better was really that frustration on my own. And then when I went to dig into the data, into the literature, realizing, oh, actually, I'm using the same tools that I use at my job. Mm. So even though economists seems like a sort of like, how is that related? Actually, there's so much data work that I do. So much of my of my sort of day-to-day professor stuff is working with data and trying to understand data, what makes good data, what makes less good data. That was the same kind of tools that I had to use to to kind of navigate this pregnancy space. And so the books really sort of come out of that insight, sort of taking like a like a data person's approach to uh, being pregnant and then later having kids. And I didn't realize how much it was exactly what I needed. (laughs) Like, you hear the headlines, you hear the releases of these studies that come out and the conclusions, and they are, like, inflammatory, and they draw these big sweeping overgeneralizations. And I hadn't found anything until I had come across your work that stepped out of the individual studies and took a bird's eye view on all the data. And so that sounds like I'm an economist is not my wheelhouse. I do not know what the skill set is, but it sounds like being able to step out of and from a bird's eye view, look at the whole overarching data from a broader perspective. In a sense, when we give people guidance, we would like it to be based on that, right? So when we tell people, do this, don't do this, Often, or at least sometimes, there is sort of something behind that, which is some larger piece of data, some kind of larger literature. But what is hard about the way I think a lot of this is like often communicated is that they aren't told why. They don't see in the background what that literature is. And that means when there's a new study, it's hard to know like, well, okay, this is not what you told me before, but like how good was the evidence before and how good is this evidence? And so I think a big piece of what I'm delivering, I hope, is that perspective of like, okay, you're telling me to do this, but why? And how sure are you is another way to put that. Like, how confident are you that this advice is right versus other advice? Yeah. And the conflicting amounts of advice and just the absolute overwhelm. And when we're talking women who may have struggled to adjust to motherhood, or we're talking about potentially postpartum depression or anxiety Or, you know, just the nervousness that comes with having to, like, take a human home from the hospital and have no idea what we're doing, right? So we want to get it right. Like, there's this real perfectionism that comes out in us where we want to follow the guidelines. We want to do whatever we can to keep that little human safe. But it's so interesting. I was reviewing your books this morning, Crib Sheet in particular, where you're talking about breastfeeding and you're talking about all of the things that breastfeeding is, you know, promised to us or like the things that it brings us. And the chart is just like, here, I've tabbed it. I'm just going to like review a couple of them. And and you're in your like funny way, you're like, and better friendships though. And like, better friendships. Really? Yeah. Who are your friends? Right. <laughs> So like the benefits that it lists to us that, you know, our child's going to have a higher IQ, less diabetes, less risk of cancer, fewer allergies, free birth control. I got pregnant breastfeeding, by the way. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's not the best birth control. It's more of a discount version. (laughs) Right? Like lower risk of, you know, like better friendships, more sleep, more stress resistant, whatever. But it's like to look at this chart, it's like, oh, my gosh, I have to nurse. How could I not? Like, look at what the research is telling you. Do you hate your baby? Right. you hate them? Like, you must. You must must. if you want to or opt to formula feed for some reason or whatever, right? And so the fact that you break these things down in such a tangible way. Can we unpack that breastfeeding one while we're on the topic? Like, Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, I think you're, you're right that sort of the bill of goods that were sold there is like when they say, you know, give your kid the best start. Like, don't you want to give your kid the best start? That's like my favorite. It's the best. What mom doesn't want that? What mom like, doesn't want to do course. that? Indeed. You know, but when you dig into the data, I'd sort of separate the kind of breastfeeding, like what might breastfeeding matter for into sort of two pieces. There are some kind of early life things, particularly around digestion, where it does seem like there are some small benefits delivered to breastfeeding. So it does look like, you know, breastfed babies are kind of have slightly fewer digestive, like gastrointestinal illnesses in the first year, which kind of makes sense if we sort of think a little bit about how breast milk might directly matter, that it's maybe it's easier to digest. Those effects are small, but they, they do seem to be there. But when we look for evidence around all of these kind of long-term impacts on your kids, like IQ or obesity or diabetes or any of these other things, we just do not see any evidence you know, supporting that, any good evidence that supports that. You do see correlations, but they're really driven by the fact that women who choose to breastfeed are really different you know, before having a baby than women who aren't in all kinds of demographic ways. Um, and I think, you know, the reason it's important to kind of dial that in is in some sense, and people say, well, okay, so I said breast is best. And what I meant was, uh, you know, slightly lower risk of gastrointestinal infections in the first year. <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a benefit, you know, but it's a totally different frame if you said, hey, you know, this is the benefit of this, as opposed to being like, this will literally give your kids superpowers. And if you don't do it, you're kind of a failure. And I think that's the piece where sometimes people will say things to me like, well, okay, so maybe some of these benefits are overstated, but like, you know, we really want people to breastfeed for whatever reason. And so like, why don't we just tell them all these things? Like, what's the downside to that? And I think the downside, I mean, you know this, like probably way better than I do, but like the downside is the sort of the lack of choice and then the subsequent potential feelings of shame or failure right. that come. And I, you know, I remember part of the reason I was so passionate about writing that part of it in particular is the emails I would get, not so much from moms, but from dads that would be like, so I would get, you know, before Crib She came out, I would get these emails from new fathers that would say, basically, my wife is like killing herself over this breastfeeding and she's so depressed and she's so upset it's not working and she's so sad and I just want to help her. And I feel like if you, maybe you could tell her that it's not such a big deal. Like she liked your book. She like trusts you. And that feeling of this is like so bad that this person's like feeling powerless in the face of this anxiety or depression or right. sort of failure feeling in their spouse sort of felt like that's not what we want to be doing for new parents. That's not what you mean when you say rest is best. That's not best. Right. Well, and this starts when trying to conceive. This starts in, you know, you go over expecting better. And that's when I found your work. People were like, had old wives tales about not being able to like eat strawberries or my mom's like, you shouldn't lift things above your head. And like, I was right. petrified yeah. to do anything because I cared so deeply about this human that I wanted to keep safe. And I think it was in that book that you raised some really interesting questions around there's been like a longstanding history of people telling women what and how to like live their life in their own bodies, right? Uh, I think it was particularly around the consumption of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And in that section, you were talking about how there's this blanket statement of never drink alcohol when pregnant. And then you go through the data and it's like just removing, like stripping the mom of all the choice and autonomy and sort of prescribing motherhood to us before we're even like maybe when we're trying to conceive what we need to do with our bodies to when we're pregnant what we need to do with our bodies your work frees us of some of that I feel like yeah and I think a lot of it is sort of you know trying to help people recapture the autonomy because I think in so many of these reproductive spaces it can be taken away you know the alcohol one is a sort of interesting example where some of the messaging has gotten, even in the last few years, like even more extreme. So recently, the WHO suggested that women of childbearing age should not be drinking alcohol because of the possibility that they might be pregnant. I think that's so extreme, but also that that would make it into some official guidance feels to me like a reflection of what we think is an okay set of things to police. Right. And that I'm not capable of making decisions that are wise. Or like... People who told me, yeah, I understand, you know, I see what you're saying about the data, like, you know, the occasional glass of wine, like, it doesn't seem like we've shown negative impacts from that. I agree with that data, but, I, you know, I'm worried that if we tell people they could have one drink, maybe they'll have three, four drinks, and that that would be bad. That doesn't really suggest a level of respect for people's individual choices. Right, right. 
And if somebody was dead set on having four or five glasses of wine in pregnancy, they don't care about your guidelines. Their anyways. guidelines aren't <laughs> helpful. I mean, yeah, that's the other piece of this where people are sort of like, you know, in some sense, like, would it be better if no one ever drank? Because we know that drinking too heavily in pregnancy can lead to fetal alcohol syndrome. That's crystal clear. And so we, that's something you want to be very careful on. The question is whether the guidance that sort of suggested people complete abstinence, whether it actually impacts any of that behavior. And I'm not sure that it does. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that you touched on in Expecting Better was caffeine. And I remember on my first pregnancy, not drinking any caffeine. I was like, so felt like I was like poisoning my baby every time I did. And then as a mom pregnant for the second time, I was like, I got to dig into this. Like, this is silly, right? Like, I <laughs> yeah. No, by like the third kid, it's like, you know, put the IV in with the cat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. My third kid, oh, he's like the most chill child because yeah. I was just like, sure, lick the ground, whatever. Like, whatever. You know? <laughs> so like, yeah, what about caffeine for moms who are expecting or are expecting with their second child and feeling like... <laughs> They're doing something wrong there. No, it's, you know, the evidence on caffeine is, you know, if anything, probably even more reassuring in the sense that, you know, really doesn't seem to be linked to negative outcomes. A lot of the worry with caffeine is the links with miscarriage. But again, when you sort of dig into that data and you ask, like, why would we think that? There are some correlations there in some data, but they really seem to be driven, I think, in that case, largely by some combination of age and a sort of confounding factor of nausea where when you try to get to the best evidence, it does not seem like caffeine is linked with bad outcomes. You know, if you're drinking like more than eight cups of coffee a day, it's like a little bit more ambiguous because it's probably just very hard to know. Not a lot of people are drinking more than eight cups of coffee every day. But if you're sort of talking about kind of normal levels of caffeine consumption. Right. Like I just want my cup of coffee just in want the a morning. Cup of coffee like in the I morning. Just... I want a latte. Exactly. I used to be a barista side note when I was going through university and I just got a fancy espresso machine and I'm like, how, how would I not want this in my life? This is, this is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think one of the pieces here that you've mentioned is when you dig into the good data and without us needing to like maybe dive into all of the statistics lesson here, not all data is created equal, right? And so when you're looking through this data and you're going through the studies, you're looking for some key things that make that like reliable data. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I mean, I think one thing is in general, um, if we can randomize something is better than not. So if you are interested in something like how does coffee affect pregnancy, your sort of best case scenario is if you randomly told some women to drink coffee and some not. Turns out studies like that are possible in some of the medical parts of pregnancy, things like epidurals and and so on. They're not so easy in the kind of lifestyle, in the lifestyle side. So when we look at data on lifestyle questions like caffeine or sushi or those kind of things, we're we're more, exactly, deli meat, we're more commonly just, you know, comparing women who make different choices. And the thing that's, of course, hard about that is that, you know, people who choose to have caffeine are different demographically. In that case, they tend to be older, they tend to be higher income than women who don't. And it's hard to know if you've sort of sufficiently adjusted for that. So a lot of what I'm looking for is just how good a job did the study do in controlling for, in adjusting for other differences between people. And then sometimes there's kind of clever, more sophisticated ways that they've tried to figure out some causal relationship. And sometimes I'm looking for those, but those are often a little harder to explain. And I remember being in my master's program and even my undergrad program conducting research. And like, as somebody who's put all this time and effort into a research project, you want there to be significant data that comes out of that. And there are ways for you to work the data sort of to get some of those results or like, you know, manipulate the variables a little bit. So there is like a game that is played in data even, right? Because you've put all this time and effort and funding and things. So having an eye for that and really being able to go through and see, okay, like, what is the what is the real meat of this here? Like, let's discard some of the junk and really get to the meat of it. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, there are are sort of things you can see if you spend enough time in this data, you can sort of see, how does this feel? It's almost but it's like, like, that's something people like, how do you know it's good? And it's like, I don't know, sometimes it's just like, like there's sort of very subtle things that I'm picking up on and it would be hard to list all of the things that, that they are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. It's great. One of the other things, and, and pregnancy is particularly hard to do research on because, you know, we can't be signing pregnant women up for all sorts of various trials ethically, right? So it is more of that 
like you said, lifestyle or or interview type of data. But one of the other pieces that really stood out, and I think that a lot of women that I've worked with feel a lot of shame about and get a lot of shaming from doctors about, is their weight in pregnancy. Mm. Uh, big one, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember in my first pregnancy, this sort of like the weekly, I, you know, every would like weigh in and then they would be like, oh, I don't know. You gained a lot of weight, you know, and particularly as a person who's sort of like always kind of had like a lot of, I don't know, like, like it's weird to be weighed every month. I do not like to be weighed and have people comment on my weight. It's not something that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think there was a sort of feeling of kind of shaming again. Um, and then the question was, when I dug into it, like, why do we care so much? You know, they sort of say, okay, if you start a normal weight, you should gain between 25 and 35 pounds. But like, okay, but then like, what happens if I'm like at 36 pounds? Like, do, do I just explode? Does the baby just like explode out? Is that how that works? <laughs> it's like, it seems like that. that would be like a very poor evolution. Right. You know, when I dug into it, I think what was interesting about that was that the sort of most significant links between weight gain or lack of weight gain and baby outcomes do have to do with the size of the baby. There's kind of some relationship between how much weight you gain and how big the baby will be. It's not perfect, but it's sort of on average, there's some relationship there. So there's like a little bit of this worry, like if you gain too much weight, then the baby will really big. And you know, if the baby is like really big, then they can sometimes get stuck a little bit. But on the flip side, if the baby is really small, that's also not good, right? So sort of gaining substantially less weight can also be problematic, right. which is something that was never focused on, I noticed. And so I sort of get in, in the book to sort of saying like, you know, there's kind of an idea that this is sort of the optimal in some way, but moving around that is, it's actually, if anything, you'd probably rather gain more weight than recommended rather than less weight than recommended, just given the sort of relative risks of those things. Which is interesting because that's not how it feels, no. right? It feels like, and as somebody who gained 36 pounds, 36 uh, pounds. Yeah. Uh, like, like 45 to 50, depending on the pregnancy. Uh, and having agency over my body and my weight my whole life entering into pregnancy and then into the medical system that now wants to dictate like how much weight I should gain or lose. And as a mom wanting to adhere to the guidelines that keep my baby safe. Yeah. And that is already such a recipe for anxiety with the conversation not being rounded out on the tail end that, hey, if you're outside of this, I don't know. I've I've had women message me where their doctors have like prescribed them to go home and like go on a diet because they're gaining too much weight while they're pregnant. And it's just like, it's not okay. And the risk of being over, like gaining more than what is recommended does not warrant yeah. that kind of a response, right? I think that's right. Like we sometimes in these things, we sort of take the advice as if, or take the guideline as if it's so important that it's like any deviation outside of it is some kind of like epic tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that is a poor understanding of the way that most of these guidelines are written, that they don't write down 25 to 35 pounds because when you gain 36 pounds, the walls cave in. You know, there's like these are sort of written to be guidelines and they have something behind them, but they're not like sort of precise in that way. And I think we often in these medical spaces can sort of get into a place where we're treating the guidelines like they contain more information than they do. Right. Like it's some sort of hard and steadfast law across all people, right? Yeah. But it would be odd if 35 pounds was like a magic drop dead <laughs> number. Like number. it would be odd that it would end with a five, you know, like you at least think you would <laughs> to like not be such a round number. Could you imagine? Oh, you hit 35 pounds. That baby's going to pop That's out. That's it. Like, just comes right like... out. <laughs> it's so, so true. It's so true. Yeah, it's so true. When we're wrestling with anxiety, anxiety thrives or like, you know, grows and becomes this monster in uncertainty. Yeah. And so what I find happens with moms who are expecting, or we can talk about some of the crib sheet and family firm findings, is that we want to hold on to something and try to do right by that because we are trying to alleviate the anxiety that we feel. And this is sort of a putting a feeler out there for moms who feel like if there is so much hinging on every little decision that you're making or you feel like, oh my gosh, I just ate uh, like egg yolk and it was runny, like is baby going to be okay? And there's that much urgency hinging on these decisions 
then we might like query and think about the amount of anxiety that we're feeling and explore that a little bit. And I remember having like, we went to a steak place and I cut into my steak and it was medium rare. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can I eat this? Is this going to be okay? You know, these one, you know, action is not going to, it's not like a equals the causation, right? Like we come back to statistics, like this does not for sure 100% mean you've done harm to your baby. Like that's not right how it works, but it feels like that's how it works. No, and I think that's, I mean, I think the reason it feels like that is because of the way like anxiety works. Like, I was just looking down because I was reminded of somebody, so some people Instagram messaged me a lot. And so somebody Instagram messaged me the other day and said, basically, the theme of this is that our family eats a lot of eggs and my 11-month-old likes eggs and I realized today that I haven't been buying organic eggs and now I'm terrified that I've ruined my child. Yeah. When you reflect, like, of course, you haven't ruined your child. It's completely fine that your kid did not eat organic eggs, but you can sort of feel in that moment the kinds of anxiety that come up. And like for those of us who are sort of anxious people, the way that these small things, like the anxiety sort of magnifies them. And it's very hard to step back and be like, obviously, it's fine, mm -hmm. you know, and like just sort of pull yourself out of that. And I think it happens all the time in pregnancy and parenting, and particularly when we feel like we don't have control, mm -hmm. that it's sort of like we're grabbing onto these things that we think we can control. Like I can control exactly how many cookies I eat and I can control what kind of eggs in it. And, but then when we lose the control on that, when we, we like feel like we've messed up, then we, you know, again, it sort of takes over. So it's just like a really hard, stressful time. Well, and that it's like we talk about postpartum anxiety and depression being the biggest complication of childbirth, right? For this reason, like the agency shifting from our body to medical professionals or the focus on baby, the hormones that are shifting, there is just sort of this perfect storm for an increase in anxiety and depression and other mood and anxiety things during this time. And so I think that wanting and desiring certainty and reading books like yours is incredibly helpful. But then I think that also if we are taking these things as hard and fast rules, and that's such a theme through your work that I love is be gentle on yourself. It's not so black and white. It's not so straightforward, right? You are not out intentionally harming your baby by having a deli meat sandwich if you're really craving that bit of ham or whatever, you know? Like, that's how it feels sometimes. That's how it feels. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we have lots of resources for that. And we have therapists and a wellness team for that because that struggle is real, right? Yeah. And I think, and it's real and it's hard to recognize in the moment. I think that's part of what's so pernicious about this is that it can feel like the anxiety is like, well, that's just a regular thing or depression can feel. It's why it's like, I think in some ways so important to be connecting to people outside, to be doing some kind of screening, to have some external force to try to help you figure out like, is this a reasonable amount of anxiety to feel the way that I feel like it's reasonable because I'm feeling it? Yeah. As opposed to sort of, is it like sort of objectively reasonable? Yeah. Is this what motherhood is? Is this who I am exactly. now? Or is this like, you know, outside of the average amounts of mom worry that people feel, right? Exactly. One of the other ones I wanted to touch on from Crib Sheet before we get into Family Firm, and I love that you've come up with a formula for making decisions. I want to unpack that, is this whole sleep training battle that I feel like goes on. Oh, my gosh. The messages I get about oh sleep gosh. training or if I share about it in my stories yeah, on Instagram. Oh, boy. It's like you need to tell that person that they can't use cry it out. And, like, you know, it's really polarizing. So – Emily, mm -hmm. what in the world does the research tell us about sleep training and or co-sleeping? Because that was a tied in part of this conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in some ways it's really helpful to tie those together because in some ways they sort of feel so different, but they're both really polarizing. Mm -hmm. But they reflect the fact that a lot of our rhetoric around sleep, I think, is really too extreme in all of the directions. So we can sort of start with sleep training where the idea is, you know, if you let your kid cry and there's a lot of different versions of cry it out, but let's just sort of lump them and say, there's letting your kid cry till they fall asleep versions of that. Yeah. And we'll say, you know, if you do that, your kid will have attachment problems and they'll never love you and et cetera. Different problems of that need. They'll have trouble forming adult attachments. There's a lot of theories. Yes. That isn't what the data says. And this is actually a place where we have quite good data. We have randomized trials. We have fairly long-term follow-up. And what you see in these randomized trials is that, you know, when people sleep train their babies, babies sleep better. It's not perfect. Not every baby sleeps through the night after two days of sleep. You know, just kids vary. Yeah. But on average, sleep is improved. On average, 
parental mood is improved. I think that's actually something that, again, is sort of a little bit missed in this conversation is there are some real benefits to parental mood, marital satisfaction, parental sleep. Yeah. And and I would assume that there would be some sort of relationship there between like our mood and anxiety because we know how much sleep plays into our regulation of our mood. Yeah. And so we actually see you see big postpartum depression reductions in some of these studies. And then when they look at the kind of like follow up and is the kid unhappy or less attached or any of these other things, they don't see any evidence of that either in the immediate term or like, you know, five or six years later. So we're just not seeing any evidence that those concerns are supported. And, you know, what I say in the book is like, does that mean you have to sleep train? No, it's a, you know, and I think it's some people feel the pressure in that direction. Like, I, you know, I didn't want to sleep train my kid. And I felt like my pediatrician was shaming me, telling me I had to sleep train. Like, we don't want to do that in that direction either. And the sort of flip of this is the co-sleeping, where for some people, that's something that they want to do for various reasons. And the sort of rhetoric there is like, if you do this, you'll kill your baby. And that's kind of also overstated. So it actually is true that there are some small elevated risks for SIDS in co-sleeping, but those risks, those elevations are very small in circumstances in which co-sleeping is done as safely as possible. And so if there is no pillows and, you know, you're not drinking and not smoking and, you know, nobody in the bed is drinking and smoking, that the sort of risks are relatively small. And so I think all of that together kind of suggests we should probably be giving more agency to parental choice in this, as opposed to the kind of message that is sent out, which is like, there is a single right way to do this. Your baby should be alone in their crib, in your room. Don't leave them in another room. You know, don't like all of this kind of stuff. There, there's more nuance in the data than that and more room for parental choice and parental choice differences. Yeah, it feels very prescriptive. And if we were to step back and look at like motherhood and like cultures and how parenting is done across different countries and cultures where co-sleeping may very well be the norm or there's just lots there to learn in terms of doing it safely. And like you had said, I saw the graph in, I love the visuals too. They're so helpful. Where like really when we're talking increase of SIDS and, and co-sleeping, we're really talking like, you know, substance use. We're talking smoking, yeah. you know, really not in my mind. The clients that I'm working with who have like this special little like, you know, caught the part on their bed right, yes. and like, yeah. right. And all of these like really intentional, conscious yeah. choices around their child's safety laid out to do it as safely as possible. Yeah. And I think part of what I find frustrating about that particular discussion is that the rhetoric is like, don't do this, it's unsafe. And that gets in the way of explaining to people, if you were going to do it, what would be the safest ways to do it? Yes. And then you end up with people doing things which are even less safe, right? So sort of people who are like basically trying to stay awake and end up falling asleep with their baby on the sofa, which is like literally a hundred times way less, like way on like the sofa is the least safe place. You would much rather be sleeping, co-sleeping with your baby in a bed with a firm mattress mattress, with no pillows around with no, you know, then you would you be on the sofa. It's just like no comparison at all. But when we don't provide people with that information, it's easy for that to get lost. Well, it brings me back to like adolescence and the abstinence conversation, right? Like, oh, just don't have sex. Like people are going to have sex. So if we don't teach them about how to have safe sex, then they're just off like willy nilly doing whatever the heck, right? So it's that same idea when we just put out these blanket statements of don't do this. Well, then people think you like can't get pregnant in a hot tub. You get pregnant in a hot tub. <laughs> or like, can I get pregnant by swallowing sperm? Like these are the conversations I come up with adolescence. It's like, uh, you know. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Being informed is is so helpful. And so you have taken this approach to analyzing the data through pregnancy and expecting better. Through crib sheets in those really early years, like, oh crap, I've brought baby home and now what the heck do I do here? like the back to sleep and like all the different sleep training pieces there, breastfeeding, all of that. And now you're taking the same approach into the family firm. Yeah. So, you know, after I wrote Crib Sheet, people were like, you're going to write another one about older kids. And I had sort of thought no, because like the approach in the first two books is really, really data driven. And it's also sort of data driven around the fact that a lot of the questions that we have are very similar. So like, not that, you know, of course, every parent struggles with different things, but there are these like big building blocks, breastfeeding, food introduction, you know, potty training, epidurals and pregnancy. It was like, it was easy to sort of see the structure of those books 
and what would be the data pieces I would want to bring in. And when you get to older kids, all bets are off, right? So like some people's main questions about their five-year-old are things about school. Some things are about like, you know, behavior. Some people's questions are, are about extracurriculars. Some people's questions are about food. They're about screens. Like we all have a million different questions. Right. Divorce, blended family, like athletics. Exactly. Like, like and even within those, they're incredibly specific. So it's like the question of like, what school should my kid go to? That's not one question. Even how you talk about that question yeah. depends on where you live. And so, but then, you know, I sort of, as I kind of reflected on that, and then you always have to really write another book because, you know, people start bothering you for it. <laughs> I'm being bothered for a book and I'm like, I, I don't have time right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, they'll write another one. You know, I realized there were some really interesting data pieces and that actually they're useful for people, but that what they needed was kind of a decision wrapper. That in effect, you need a way to sort of think about the choices. And when you have some like decision-making tools and sort of wrappers around that, then you know where to plug the data in. And by giving people a lot of the, the book is sort of the first part of the book is really about, you know, giving people this kind of decision framework and helping them think about how they can sort of craft their family in a more deliberate way. And then once you've done that, you can sort of say, okay, now I can see where I would plug in the data. Now I can see what pieces of data might be useful. So there's like part of the book that's really about data. And then there's this sort of like everybody is different, but actually we all need to make choices and here's a good way to make them kind of point. Well, when we think about making decisions, and this is something that I actually work with in session all the time, if we come from more maybe like codependent families or families that are very sort of like top down and you listen to the parents' advice for you, we actually don't develop over time our own critical way of making these decisions. It can be very paralyzing and there's a lot of indecisiveness that goes on because either our parents have made decisions for us or, you know, maybe our providers have been very prescriptive and we mm -hmm. haven't had the freedom to experience making our own choices in those areas and in that environment. So the fact that you're empowering people with a framework to make their own decisions, it feels just that, like it feels very empowering. It feels very just like practical and helpful for parents. Yeah, I think that's my hope. And that, you know, I think so when I talk about this decision making framework, it has a sort of piece in the middle, which is sort of closer to a lot of the data pieces, right, which I call fact finding, which is like basically for whatever is the decision, there's going to be a bunch of information that you need to collect, mostly about data, but about sort of other pieces of the logistics. But the first step of the decision making is to frame a question and to sort of say, like, what are you really asking? And I think that's a first piece that we often fall down on is that when we think about these kind of choices, we are not actually saying what our choices are. So we ask the question like, what's the right kind of school for my kid? That's not a question with an answer. The question that you have is, there are two choices. Here they are. Which one should my kid go to? Right. Yeah. Well, no, I'm like making my latte this morning, reflecting on this interview <laughs> before we got on. And I'm like, hmm, private school or public school, you know? And it's between those two choices I'm not in a position to be sending my kids to private school right now anyways, even if I wanted to. So I'm not going to torture myself with that. Don't torture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's like, yeah, identifying that question. So like when we go back to the mom who, you know, with the organic eggs or like I ate egg yolk, it's like, and the fear and the anxiety sets in about this decision. Yeah. Like what is the question that we need to work through or, or identify? Like is the question like is – egg yolk really harmful to baby? Like, what is that question? Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think in some ways it gets really into this anxiety thing. It's like, it's so easy to worry, but sometimes we want to just say like, okay, there's some choice. Like, what is the choice? What is the question that you want the answer to? It can't just be like, should I freak out about this? Like, it's not really like, a good, it's like a good question. Or like, right. Like, I'm just gonna, now I'm just gonna freak out about this. And no, I'm, I'm gonna, just gonna like, freak out. Yeah. Or just recognize, like, should I freak out briefly, I guess, but then you gotta like move on. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this sort of decision where you like ask the question and then you spend some time sort of collecting the data or the information that you need in that question. And when I talk about older kids, I talk a lot about sort of the role of logistics and planning that in fact, for many of the choices that we're making for our kids, there's a real component of kind of, if your kid is doing one thing, they can't do another thing. And this comes up much more with bigger kids than with littler kids. You know, if I'm trying to decide if my kid should play on the travel soccer team, 
it may be that when I dig into it, that's actually going to get in the way of something else I think is a much bigger priority, like family dinner or church or whatever is in that space. And that may kind of make the decision for you. Mm. Information gathering in this time period isn't just data. Sometimes it's partially data, but it's also all kinds of other stuff. It's like tune into your values. Tune into your values. So like, what is your value? Yeah. I talk a little bit about how people can make some of these decisions more easily if they sort of at the beginning think about saying what their values are and think about kind of like writing down with their partner, other stakeholders in their family, writing down like what are the most important things for you, both kind of in the very big picture, like what's your mission, but then also like what are the things we really want our family to be doing every day or every every week kind of practically. Yeah. And leaning into values before you even get into the pros and cons and benefits, like you said, that fact finding is so helpful because you may not even need to go there. You may not even need to do it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There are some really like sort of key organizing principles in our house. Like we eat family dinner. That's like something my family cares about. And like the kids go to bed kind of early, not that early anymore, but like early-ish. And that actually ends up dictating a lot of the other stuff that we do because there's a lot of things that you cannot do if you're outside of the house day ends at six. There's a lot of things that that rules out. And I think that by saying up front, that's something we really care about. It kind of helps us with a lot of these other decisions. Yeah. And like with me and our family values and my partner, like I really value freedom and flexibility. And I built a whole platform online so that we can maybe be in Europe at some point for a chunk of time or whatever. Like we can choose. My husband's from Benin, West Africa. We could spend time with his family there for a year if we wanted to, if, you know, we have the ability to pick up and go. And so when we look at things, you know, certain things that like lock us in here, it goes against the lifestyle that we're trying to build. Not that we're by any means nomadic. And I don't think anybody can be in COVID right now, <laughs> but right. that might be the dream one day. Who knows? Right. So, yeah. But I think what I think is so interesting about that is people sometimes ask me, you know, well, you have this like very structured system and digital, but like, what about people who like to be spontaneous? Like, what about spontaneity? And I think sometimes what I'll point out to people is like, actually, if you have school age kids and you want every weekend to be a spontaneous, fun activity where you can like do whatever and drive off and go on a huge hike and sailboard or whatever, if you want to be like living your flexible dream, you actually need to say that up front because otherwise every Saturday is going to be like three birthday parties and, uh, you know, two kids soccer games. And like, you're just going to find yourself in there. But if you set up front, you know what, what's really important to us is that we don't have anything to do on Saturday. And that when we wake up every Saturday morning, we can just choose our own adventure because that's what our family cares about. You need to do that intentionally. Yeah. You need to like schedule your flexibility. And it's such a weird thing to say, but I think it is important to note that even if you're not planning to like do a thousand extracurriculars, even if you wanted no extracurriculars, you need to plan to do nothing. You do. Otherwise we would be in like rep hockey tournaments or we would be so tied down that we wouldn't be able to go and do the random things that we love to pick up and do. And exactly. I don't know, I just really, I'm like an Enneagram, like seven wing eight through and through. Like I just want the ability to move when I want to, you know? And it's really good to know that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like a really good thing to know about yourself. Yeah. So when we go through the values piece, we can either say, okay, like, eh, scrap it. Or no, I really, this is something that I do value and I care about. And then we move into what? The fact finding? Yeah. And then we have some fact finding, get some information. And then we sort of get into making a decision. And so there's sort of like two last parts of this structure. So one is I call final decision. And in some ways it seems sort of facile. Like, of course, you have to make a decision. This is about making some decision. But I think often we don't say when we're going to make our decisions. So when we have this big choice, we sort of just let it like fester and fester and fester. So I to somebody the other day, not in the context of parenting, who was telling me like, you know, I've been trying to decide if I should change jobs for five years. Okay, that's like a pretty long time to be like, and it sounded like they, he had been like actively thinking about this all the time. Like torture, right? Five years, you know, and so I think to really to say, you know, look, I'm going to get all the information that I need. I'm going to think about my question is, and then I'm going to set a time at which I'm going to make a decision. And I'm going to understand that, like, I may not be sure if that's the right decision. And I think that's the key. Like, it's very hard in most of these decisions to leave the decision and be like, I'm sure that's right. You can't be sure. What you can be sure of is that you made the decision in the right way, but you cannot be sure it's the right decision. Yeah. But you do have to make it. And so I think it's important to recognize the need to do that. That is such a crucial piece. And this is something I work with clients all the time because, again, when we are wrestling with anxiety 
or like post-traumatic stress or trauma or birth trauma, like we want to make our moves with 100% certainty. And in no thing in life is that possible, especially in pandemic times. Especially in COVID. Right. When everything feels so high stakes and we're battling this invisible enemy that our brain has a hard time conceptualizing, no decision is going to have a real, maybe not no, but not few decisions are going to have a real certainty to them. Yeah. And few decisions are going to feel good. I mean, I think that was the thing I recognized in COVID that like in a lot of our life decisions, maybe we don't know if it's right, but like sometimes you feel like it was a good, like you feel good about the decision. I think what was sort of different for me qualitatively in the COVID space was that often I was making decisions where like I knew that the decisions felt bad. You know, so at some point we were deciding whether we should see my family for Thanksgiving. And I sort of wrote about it as like basically the two choices are nervous or sad. Yeah. Either I'm going to see them and I'm going to be like anxious the entire time about everyone getting COVID or I'm going to be sad. And those are the only two. There's no secret option C. There was only nervous and sad. Mm. And I think to sort of recognize that was the thing that let us move forward and choose sad. Because, you know, you sort of kept just thinking, is there a secret option C? Is there, but, you know, eventually you realize like there's no secret option C. There's only these two things. And we kind of have to choose one of them, even though we wish that we didn't. It's like the lesser of the evils or what's the, you know, least risky or what's the outcome that we can most effectively cope through, right? Exactly. When we're talking postpartum, and I mean, is this conversation, has it expired in terms of the pandemic and things opening? I think we're headed through a third wave, so it'll probably be relevant again, is that when we're talking postpartum and we're talking supports, we're talking, you know, vaccinated family, but fear about having people around our newborn, but we're struggling in postpartum to manage, function, adjust, you know. Maybe you need your mom. Maybe you need your mom. Maybe you need your mom you know? And so what is that least risk? Does the risk of, you know, allowing a vaccinated person in to be a support system to you, you know, marginally or or maybe more than that, change the decision or like make you feel better in terms of the support system that you're getting? Supports in for postpartum women, parents in this pandemic has been a big, big topic of conversation. So I agree. And then I guess the last thing I will say is sort of after you made this decision, there's sort of a fourth piece of this, which is a follow-up. And I think that we, again, when we make a lot of these decisions, you know, sometimes you just make them in their short term and then you don't get a chance to revisit them. But particularly when you're talking about older kids and these kind of bigger decisions, there's often a sense in which like there is some opportunity to follow up to like figure out, you know, to like rethink your decision and that we should plan that follow-up when we make the decision. That a part of the decision-making should be like, okay, what's the point at which we're going to revisit and think about was this the right choice and do we want to make a different choice in the future? And I think that that's actually can be quite important, particularly when we're dealing with some of these questions like, should my kid get a phone? Where I think that people sort of think of giving your kid, and your kids are too little for this, but like, it's coming. My six-year-old started asking already. Absolutely, no, that's a good time to ask. The question is, you know, you're going to give your kid a phone. And like, I think people think of that as like, I'm going to give them a phone and that's it. Then they're going to have a phone forever. But there's nothing that wouldn't say that you could say, we're going to try this and we're going to have a follow up and see how it goes. Now, you want to be upfront about that, because if you just spring on them, that you're taking their phone away, they're going to be really mad. But there is a kind of role in all of these decisions for the opportunity to say, you know, you can change your mind, but you could kind of plan when you're going to think about doing that. Yeah. And I think about that in terms of lots of like cyclical things too, where like, oh, we're going to try a sport. We'll sign up for this time. And then if you want to continue with it, or we can drop it once that, you know, stint of it is done. Or even with schools, like there are sort of natural breaks and rhythms that allow for some of this pulling together touch point conversations to see if this is how we want to continue moving forward. Yeah. And I think in particular, when we think about kids activities, we can kind of get into a situation in which we're sort of like, that's what we always do. And I think in the pandemic, one of the things that happened was all of those activities got kind of shut down. Yeah. As people do start to, in some ways, reemerge, I think there has been a moment for a lot of people to say, okay, which of those things do I want to reintroduce? Now that there was like a break in all of them, there may be an opportunity to craft a life structure that maybe is a little different from what I had before, but might fit our family's values better. Mm-hmm. Or you could do what I've been calling revenge summer, where you do all the things because it's been so it's true. up, right? It's true. My kids were like, we're going somewhere again this weekend. We we're like, yes. 
<laughs> it's revenge we summer. Are. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was like last summer was like every single weekend I went for a hike. I think like every single weekend. By the end, my six-year-old was just like, he was just like done complaining <laughs> because it was like. <laughs> so funny you guys must have been like ripped by the end of the summer and, no like... we were like the kids got in really good shape actually we went hiking last week and my six-year-old did like a six mile thousand foot elevation mountain and it was like by the end we were all really whiny <laughs> like, <he did> it. <laughs> that's so funny it's true my six-year-old he's like he starts whining then i'm whining because he's yeah. whining and everyone's whining we went to um my feet are like... bloody stumps oh, it's not that bad <laughs> We're finally slowly like in Ontario. We were in lockdown from November. So we're finally, finally. Mm-hmm. And we have really great, well, we didn't initially, but we're picking up with vaccination rates. And so things are opening and we're like, I think like close to 75% first vaccination. So we got to go to Wonderland, which is like a Darien like Six Flags kind of like amusement park equivalent. And man, it was nice just to like life for the summer. So yeah, feels good. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. And again, this is so great. Thank you. This is going to be so helpful for so many parents tuning in, but I can't understate even the impact and value it had on my own experience and journey, which is really cool to be able to sit down here with you today. Where can people find the family firm? Where can they find your books? Do you hang out online? Can they follow you there? So you can find my books anywhere where books are sold. Family firm is out August 3rd, which I assume is after this. Well, it's out August 3rd. This will, yeah, it'll be out by the time this airs. Yeah. Awesome. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Prof Emily Oster. And you can find my Substack, which is called Parent Data, which is my twice a week newsletter where I talk about a lot of these kinds of issues. Very cool. And we're going to link all of that in the show notes so you can click through, easily find it. And I love your Instagram too for sharing the visuals and the graphs and things when it comes to some of these important topics. So thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.